Turn with me to two places. Hebrews chapter 4. That was our warm-up, by the way. Hebrews chapter 4. Sorry, I, can't, uh, I cannot let national things go by and us just kind of become numb to them. Because this is what's happening. You and I become numb to things that used to, used to kind of, wow, I cannot believe this, but you come numb to it. And Satan wants you to become numb to everything. He wants you to become numb to immorality, numb to just kind of cynicism, numb to violence. He wants you to become numb to it so it becomes so normative that you don't even care and you don't share the gospel and more and more people just die in that condition. But Jesus came for a different reason. Amen? So turn with me to two places. Hebrews chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 2, which is just a few pages over uh, from Hebrews to the right, a right-hand turn. Uh, I'll read 1 Peter 2 as well. I mean, I'll read that one first and then we'll uh, read from Hebrews chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Actually, I'll do verses 4 and 5. And I'm reading this in the context just to show you uh, the elements of what takes place in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and how it comes forward in the work of Christ and the body of Christ. And we're part of this in the New Covenant. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men... This is true in our nation right now. Jesus is currently being rejected by the vast majority of people in favor of everything else. But chosen by God and precious. If you're saved, you've been chosen by God, you're precious to God. Isn't that great to know? You've been chosen by God. You also, verse 5, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Here it is. A holy priesthood. Holy priesthood. In this case, your gender doesn't matter, and the priesthood of God, we're all called to represent him, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's what God wants your life to be, a living sacrifice, acceptable to God through who? Jesus Christ. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. We pick up where we're going verse by verse. We'll finish the fourth chapter today. Starting with verse 14, Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. How many of you have weaknesses? You're like, how many can I count? More than I can count but was in all points tempted. How many of you have been tempted lately? Tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us, we see this word, this phrase again, let us again, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. How many of you have had a time of need lately? I mean, all these words should resonate with your life. Wow, I got weaknesses. I have temptations. I live in a time of need. Every week I have a new need. Let's pray. Father, we just bow our heads to the one 
who's called us by name. And Lord, as Dr. Russ prayed earlier, if there's a person here that doesn't know you yet, Lord, you've already chosen them, but if they've chosen you back, today would be the day that they come and find atonement through the one priest that can give it, Jesus. We pray that you would remove every distraction, Lord, that you would calm our spirits, and Lord, you'd fill this place with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, remove me, as it were, from the equation that they might hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We considered last week the miraculous and radical change that takes place when a person is born again. Of course, Jesus coined that phrase in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus. When we became, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, a new creation. Aren't you glad you've been made new? That God's done a new work in you? And it's with that new birth, that heavenly transaction, that God then places his spirit within us to lead us, to guide us, to keep us. I mean, the Holy Spirit, the only reason I'm still walking for Jesus since 1995, the only reason is the Holy Spirit and grace. Uh, and mercy. But they all kind of are part of the same, uh, they're part of the same thing. So the only reasons, but, but they're all found in the work of the Spirit, right? If God didn't make you and I a new creation, we would have left the faith a long time ago. It's not your goodness that has kept you in the flock. It's the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And that same Spirit that lives in us, that inspired the very verses that we're reading here this morning, compels us to heed his word, as we looked at last week, and purposely allow the work of the word to day by day do that lifetime work of sanctification, which is stripping away all the little things of the flesh. Little by little, stripping away the things of the flesh. It takes time to shave us into a decent, workable mold. And that's done by the living word, as we looked at last week. But we through that work, we find what? Rest in the Word. And we find growth through that work in our walk with Christ. The more we read the Word, meditate on the Word, the work of the Word, it helps us to walk. It actually strengthens our legs. One of my favorite passages in the Scriptures is in Ezekiel. It says that the water hit the ankles, then it hit the knees, then it hit the waist, then it overrides the head. And I believe that just a picture of just the immersion of the Spirit God wants to strengthen you from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. He has to be the work of the Spirit. But the Word is central to that, as we looked at last week. And so in sequence, again, taking the text in sequence, we have seen in the last couple of weeks that God gives His Word in two ways. Verbally, before the Word was penned, God gave it verbally, but then in the written Scripture. And we respond just like Israel did, initially with faith unto salvation. And then the faith of surrender as as a disciple entering the rest of his lordship. And then continuing daily in his word to conform us to the image of Jesus. And all this is prompted and motivated and fortified by the Holy Spirit. It's God himself that gives the initiation. 
the ingredients, the instructions. You're holding in your hand the instruction manual. It's like him giving everything we need to bake a cake. Our, our family likes to bake. Maybe too much. But they do. And I like when they bake. Maybe too much. And I like when other people bake. But, that, but uh, it's like, again, having all the ingredients to bake a cake. God giving everything we need to bake it, including the precise recipe, the stove, even the taste buds that would even desire it in the first place. God gave us the taste buds that would even like the cake. And who doesn't like cake, right? He said his words like honey, sweet like honey. He was promising rest and a land flowing with milk and honey. So in addition to the how and what, he's placed a desire in us. He said, here's how you bake that cake, but I'll also give you the desire and the taste for it. God's given us a taste for the word once we've come to salvation. We now like to read the word, or at least we should. It's a work of the Spirit. But with all that, you know, if you had all the ingredients for a cake and you even had the stove and you had everything and you had the desire and even the umption and everything else and you had all that, guess what? You still need the unseen power of the electric or gas company, don't you? You have no control over whether Dominion or the gas company happens to be working that day. No control over it whatsoever. You still need that outside your element force. You can put forth the effort, and we have to, but God has to provide the power. Amen? The power has to come from God, and that's the work of the Spirit that he gives us, and we need that desire. But as we looked at in recent weeks, we need that desire, but that desire should prompt, must prompt, a response from us. Amen? You can desire to get married, but when you stand before that pastor, you have to say, I do. And he says, what do you say? Uh, you have to say, I'm in. For better or worse, you have to respond. There's a response required. Well, I have desire. I just can't say yes to this. No. You have, to, you have to make that commitment. And so as we pick up with verses 14 through 16 and the next few chapters, we have this transition taking place in this epistle and this understanding and appreciation that as we have given our lives to the Lord, Jesus is the high priest of our faith. Jesus now leads us in this pure and undefiled religion. Jesus will be the high priest of our faith. In addition to him, he's already our savior, right? He's our deliverer. He's the promised one who brings the promised rest. And this transition, it methodically builds upon what was already laid forth in chapters 1 through 3. As the Holy Spirit lays out this house, this doctrine of faith, with who? Christ is at the center of it all. This doctrine of faith, this uh, I must believe, I have to obey, all of this Jesus is at the center of it all. Now let's remember again the audience of, of Hebrews, who it's written to, as it sheds light on the progression of the past chapters but also the past of Israel all the way in ancient times, the past of Israel and how that uh, begins to show forth in the new covenant that 
the same things God did in the past, he's doing in a greater fulfillment with the work of Jesus. Ultimately, if you think back to ancient Israel, remember they leave Egypt. When they left Egypt, they had nothing except for the, I remember all the Egyptians, hey, here, take my Take my gold collection, take my coins, take my necklaces, take all that good stuff. They had that, but they didn't have a temple. Remember, at first, they didn't even have a tabernacle. Basically, they were led by God as a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud, which is pretty cool, right? That's really cool. I've never had that. That would be great. God, if you would just lead me this week, wherever I see the fire, I will just go. Wherever I see but we don't have that. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But they didn't have... The elements that would later take place, they didn't have at first the Ark of the Covenant. There was no temple. There was no tabernacle. There was no priesthood. None of that. But later, God would have Israel under King Solomon finally build the temple. Matter of fact, he says in numerous places, and the place I will show you. They didn't even know where that was going to be. They didn't know it was going to be Jerusalem. And later they would have a high priest. And God would be the one that would choose the high priest. We'll look at this more in coming weeks. Uh, once the promised land was settled, finally settled, King David passed the torch to Solomon, then the temple was finally built. Now, prior to that, the tabernacle and the priesthood were already operational. The tabernacle and the priesthood began while they were still in the wilderness, right? They had to build everything. You're reading stuff like, how do you make this thing out? Of you ever read this thing? How do they make it out of badger skins? I don't get that. You know, I mean, how many badger skins do you have to work with to get uh, something workable here? And, it, and the dyes and the colors and they molded everything. How in the world? It's a miracle. How did they even make the molds out in the middle of the desert? I believe God did some miraculous help. But all of that took place. So the temple was not yet, but the tabernacle and the priesthood began even while they were in the wilderness. And there was already taking place long before the temple was built. There were already taking place because God gave to Moses the sin offerings, the shedding of blood. Then he raised up Aaron, then Aaron's son Eleazar. And so the priesthood was given in the wilderness period. And the priest was what? He was an intermediate for the people. Moses was one who would always talk to God, but Moses was going to die. And so after Moses would die, there had to be a role similar to Moses that would actually go between the people, and that would be the high priest. But a greater work and an eternal work and an eternal high priest, in fact, a sinless and perfect high priest was coming. God had shown Moses someone like you. I'm going to raise someone like you greater than you, a greater than Aaron. And when this letter was written to the Jewish believers... Jesus had already come and left. When the, by the time they get this letter, Jesus had already come to Bethlehem and left on the Mount of Olives 33 years later. So they're actually receiving this letter with the knowledge, if you grew up in a Jewish background, you grew up in a Jewish community, they had the background of knowing about the priesthood, knowing about the temple, knowing about the work of the priesthood. But then they get saved, and the writer of Hebrews says, oh, by the way, there's something bigger. There's a priesthood greater than the priesthood you grew up knowing about. And that's just what he's presenting. And when this letter is written, they've come into the faith as born-again believers. But now, they don't live any... Many of, these, many of these getting the letter 
don't live near Jerusalem. It's not easy to get to Jerusalem. Remember, you had to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, for example. Actually, three feasts it required the men of Israel to actually go to Jerusalem. But if you lived a long ways, God had allowed through the judgment to scatter the children of Israel around the nations. And now what the writer is saying is even if you live hundreds or even thousands of miles from the temple, you still have access to this priest. Isn't that good news? You could live in literally outer Mongolia and have access to the priesthood. You could live in the Pacific Islands. You could live way as an Aborigines in Australia and still have access to the priesthood, this priest. If you're taking notes, Jesus, our high priest. And we want to look at three things briefly this morning. And it starts in verse 14. It's the first word, seeing, seeing Jesus. Seeing that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Does it still amaze you sometimes when you watch, see how effortlessly birds just fly from place to place? You sit, I sit out on my screen and I'll just be praying, reading, and I'm like, Cardinal here, Blue Jay there, Robin here, Ugly Cat Bird over here. You know, just uh, these different, um, they didn't get the best looks, you know, but, uh, uh, but you, you, they just kind of go anywhere they want, and I'll, and I'll be running. I'll, every, in the spring, I'll see bald eagles around here. They just soar wherever they want. Jesus is like, all right, I'm leaving you all right up through the heavens. Amazing. And he's saying, seeing that we have Jesus, this high priest, if you remember the ministry of Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we don't know exactly which mount that was. Many scholars believe it was Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel up on the northern side there. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus was preparing to head to Jerusalem and face the cross, who appeared with Jesus? Moses, who never went to the promised land, but now was standing in the promised land, and Elijah, who went up on a chariot of fire, never physically died. These two great servants of God, and what did they represent? The law and the prophets. And there they were standing with Jesus. Jesus has known them since before time began. They know him. He knows them. They're having a conversation. The other apostles are like, man, we are out of the loop in this conversation. You know, they're standing back, and Jesus is conversing with Moses and Elijah like he's known them forever, and of course he has. And they are conversing. When did they know Jesus? You know, he was born in Bethlehem. You know, but they all know each other. In fact, it was so powerful, and it so uh, was necessary. They were there to minister to Jesus before the darkest hours of the cross. That's why they were there. They came to minister as priests to minister to Jesus, the high priest. And also at that time, he was about to be what? The Passover lamb. They came to minister him. The apostles were amazed. Peter was so amazed that Peter had a great suggestion. Why don't we build three tabernacles right here? Three little temples. This got Peter in trouble with the Lord. He got scolded. He got scolded a lot of times. You get scolded this week? I, I get scolded by God a lot. But he got in a little trouble. And immediately Moses and Elijah were gone. They just immediately weren't there. And the voice of God said, this is my son, hear him. That's what he told Peter. That's what he told John. That's what he told the apostles. This is my son, hear him. Even before the resurrection, the emphasis of the fathers, that Jesus hadn't even gone on the cross yet, 
He hadn't raised from the dead yet. The emphasis was clear. Jesus is not the equal of any man. No matter how great God used him in ministry, he's not the equal of Moses or Elijah. He's far above Moses and Elijah. Amen? He's not the e God says, look, he's not their equal. That wasn't three equal guys. This was their Lord and God that they were, if anything, God could have had them bow down and worship Jesus. He's the king above all kings. He's the prophet above all prophets. He's the rabbi or the teacher above all teachers. He's the deliverer above all deliverers. He's the priest above all priests. And this is what the writer is saying. We have a high priest, seeing that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. No other priest ever just flies up through the heavens. No. As Israel was given the priesthood, it was the high priest that would annually enter the Holy of Holies for the atonement of people's sins. We call it Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Annually, the high priest would enter to offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, the sins of the people. We'll see more of the roles of the priest in chapter 5. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know that the priest, because again, they grew up in the synagogues, they grew up learning the Tanakh, the Old Testament. You know the priests were given by God to represent Israel. But when you see Jesus, you see a priest that's altogether different. He's not even from the tribe of Levi, is he? All the priesthood had to be from Levi, except for Jesus. He's from the tribe of what? Judah, which was the king tribe. He's going to do, there's a merger taking place here. The priesthood and the kingship is coming together in the person of Christ. He's not even from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is altogether different. When Jesus died, what took place in the temple? The veil. <laughs> Ripped and toe. Ripped away, and then the Holy of Holies was now visible because it was ripped away. It was only visible to the high priest, but now the temple, was torn, the temple veil was torn in two, and the entrance into the Holy of Holies was open to all that put their faith in Jesus. Even that thief on the cross that died, he now had access to the priesthood right there, even on the cross. And unlike the priest that passed through the section of the temple, you know, you had the outer court and the inner court, and then you get into the Holy of Holies, so you'd pass through these different sections. The priest would have to pass through the sections, but Jesus is the only priest that passes through the sections of the heavens, from the atmosphere to the cosmos into the heaven of heavens, the Bible says, which is the heaven where God sits. He's the only one that just passes through as it's nothing. You know, we've had uh, the Hubble Space Telescope out there for eons, and it hardly gets, it's, no, it's not even outside of our solar system. Nowhere near outside of our solar system. Jesus said, all three heavens, that fast. Through the atmosphere, through the cosmos, into the heaven of heavens. He says, this priest just walks through the universe right into the kingdom of heaven. The deeper this realization gets within us, the writer is saying, seeing this, he's saying, I want you to see this. I want you to expand. I want your spiritual vision to open up. I want you to see that your priest is limitless. Seeing this realization, seeing this revelation get deeper within us, what a change of perspective for us. What a confidence builder as we seek to enter his peace and learn his rest. Learn his rest. Let's notice the desired impact on the inner man. If you're taking notes, point number two this morning, holding fast. He says, seeing that Jesus has passed through, let us hold fast our confession. Here again is this phrase, let us hold fast. We have a choice in the matter. 
But when we see the glorious power of our high priest and we remember what he endured to tear that veil in two, for us, he did that for us, it should remind us and inspire us to be unmoved in our confession of faith. You know, Satan wants you to throw away your confession. Uh, a very well-known Christian author in the last couple of weeks said he's no longer a Christian. I'm not, I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, whether he ever was it in the first place is, is for the Lord to know. I don't know, but I know this. We are told to hold fast our confession, not toss it aside. Because you would, if you toss it aside, everything else can't save you. There's no other confession other than Jesus. He's the only one that can save. Foolishness to put your faith in anything else, but how do we hold fast to an invisible request? He says, holding fast to our confession. Confession, that's something we said, something we believe. How do we hold fast to an invisible request? Well, it takes place where? In our hearts. It takes place in our hearts. To yield is to hold. If you don't remember anything else, to yield is to hold. To yield to God is to hold to God. America's problem, it's not yielded to God. Therefore, it can't hold to God. When you yield to God, you actually can hold to God. Are you yielded to God? Because if you're yielded to God, you can now hold fast to God. Now, we know that Jesus has promised to hold fast to us. Isn't that good news? He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. It's in Hebrews, but it's also written in the Old Testament as well. He said that the Father, everyone a Father had given him, he had not lost. Jesus will not lose you. You will not lose your salvation because Jesus cannot lose you. Now, whether you can cast it aside is a different discussion, which I don't have time to get into. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus will never stop loving you or me. He'll hold on to us, but we've got to cling tight too. And that, it's that yielding surrender is how we hold. He's promised to hold on to us, which is great because our grip isn't strong enough. Uh, you're holding on to God sometimes is like the grip of an infant, although some gri- infants have a strong grip. I get it. But sometimes, wow, where did this kid get that? You know. But um, you know what I mean. The bottom line is you can be as weak as can be, and you really aren't. You're barely touching Jesus, and that's about your hold. You're like this. That's not going to keep you from falling off a cliff. But then he has you like here. You see the difference? But if you say, I don't want to touch you, I don't want to be, I, don't, I just want to do my own thing. Well, you're not holding on to God. But he still, if he's promised in his part, will hold on to us. And so we're told to hold to our confession as Jesus holds on to us, which is to hold tight to our commitment to Christ. I mentioned last week, and the week prior to that, I, think, I don't remember which week I mentioned it, but um, we see uh, Moses had said in Deuteronomy 4.4, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. He said you held fast. Now, not everyone did, so some actually did hold fast to the Lord, and God kept his promise to hold fast to them. The Lord will always be faithful to do his part. Our part is just, Lord, if I can just, if I can just keep my eyes on you, that's holding on to you. I can't even get a hand in that direction, but if I can just keep my eyes focused on you, God will do his part. But I think it is reasonable to say that here, post-resurrection of Jesus, post 
Jesus coming uh, as he did for his uh, earthly ministry, it's reasonable to say that we have an advantageous perspective and encouragement that was not given to the Old Testament saints. Our high priest is not Aaron, is not Eleazar, or any other servant that died just like we're going to die. Our high priest is Jesus. We actually know his name. They didn't even know his name in the Old Testament. They just knew that somebody was coming. God promised someone of the seed of Eve, risen from the dead, mighty, powerful, presiding over the heavens. That's who our high priest is. And the writer reminds us that he will never, ever fail us. Isn't that great to know? We have a priest to hold on to that's holding on to us that, unlike Aaron, has limitless power, limitless authority. Christ, though, he put on the weakness of flesh, didn't he? I mean, he was born as a baby. That doesn't seem like the way any of us would have kind of presented God coming to man. Like, let's, let's have him be born as an infant. But he put on the likeness of human flesh. So Why? Well, the scripture tells us here, it goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ put on the weakness of human flesh. So he encountered, think about these things. You, you'll recognize all these in your life. You might even be feeling some of them right now, this minute. Jesus encountered being weak. I mean, man, I feel really weak. I feel weak emotionally. I feel weak mentally. I feel weak physically. I feel weak. You name it. Uh, Jesus felt fatigued, fatigued, despised. You ever been despised? Rejected. Despised and rejected men. Misunderstood. This drives Americans crazy, by the way. They hate being misunderstood. Jesus was constantly misunderstood. They even called him a son of the devil. Talk about misunderstanding, misrepresentation, taken advantage of tempted. Satan himself, not some low-level demon, Satan himself worked him over for 40 days and 40 nights. Tempted. Enticed. Sadness. Pain. Ridicule. Anguish. Torture. Literal torture. Not the way, oh, I feel tortured. No, literal torture before the cross. Jesus said, I've endured all of that in human flesh. He put on human flesh so he would feel we talk a lot about our feelings. Jesus really felt these things, literally. Yet he experienced and endured all of this in just a 33-year life. And here's the amazing thing. Here it is, the end of verse 15. Yet without what? Sin. How do you go through all that and not have one bad word come out of your mouth, right? One, i got to get even with that person. One, if they gossiped about me, I'm going to gossip about them. Never once. Jesus never once. Not even a trace of a sin. That's amazing. You and I can't go through a morning without screwing up somewhere, right? <laughs> this is not just a footnote, though. It's essential to our salvation and being able to live the victorious Christian life in a fallen world and in our own fallen flesh. It's the sinless life of Jesus that's the underpinning of his death and resurrection's power, providing a way of salvation, but also a way of sanctification. If Jesus is not sinless, we all should leave here and go do something else. Amen? 
but he is sinless. Only a pure and sinless sacrifice could be accepted by God. Not just a lamb without blemish, but sinless in this case. And his sinless perfection is one of the cornerstones of our faith. You talk about a doctrine that you can't ever yield on. It's the sinless state of Jesus, that he never committed not even a single sin. That's all, three of the primary apostles all taught on this. It's in your Bibles. Look at the passages that I have up on the screen here. Number one, Peter, the apostle Peter, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, who committed, speaking of Jesus, no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Paul writes about it, 2 Corinthians 5.22, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. John writes about it, John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Peter, Paul, John, three of the most primary apostles all said, we know one thing, Jesus never committed a single sin. The writer of Hebrews could have been Paul. He goes on to say the same thing. Very important. This is foundational to our faith. Uh, the more we recognize that he alone is flawless, that he alone is fearless, that he alone is never failing, that he alone is never forgetful. I forget things all the time, and I feel bad about it. How about you when you forget something? Oh, I told you I'd call you. I actually do like you, I promise. We're forgetful, we're fearful, we're flawed. Jesus is none of those things. He's perfect. He alone is never fatigued. He was fatigued on his earthly ministry, but he's not fatigued anymore. He has strength for you that you and I don't have. But here, here, here's who we are. John Knox, look at this quote. John Knox said, in youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, after walking with the Lord for years, I find nothing in me but corruption. If you think that you're so much better now than you used to be, you're not close to Jesus. Because the closer you get to Jesus, you just say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I am bankrupt. You can say, as Paul said, Paul had served the Lord like crazy and said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I meet too many Christians who don't think they're the chief of sinners. They think they're the chief righteous and everybody else. Paul said, no, I'm the worst. But his grace is working through me. The sinless perfection of Jesus, this realization is actually liberating. Why? Because Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. This is really cool. Once you realize that you are full of corruption, really weak, really flawed, really forgetful, and that you can still go against the forces of hell, you start to realize, I've got the armies of heaven behind my back. Isn't that great to know? That Jesus is going before us, the high priest. It's his uniqueness, his perfection, his power that we need. He knows this. Do we know this? Last thing we look at this morning. Final verse, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In this last verse, we have what? An invitation. The writer saying, let us come. You have a gold foil invitation from Jesus, from the high priest himself. Let us come. We're not asked to find our way to the temple in Jerusalem, which is good because it's not there. If the temple was a requirement, we're in trouble because the temple was destroyed. You're not told to find your way to Jerusalem. There's no temple there, and even if there was, it couldn't help us. There's no high priest there either. There's no high priest. They don't even know. Uh, where do we find the high priest? God 
There's no high priest now on the earth. There's no temple on the earth. Now, I, I know my Bible prophecy. I know those things will come in the millennial reign of Christ. I know those things are coming. And there's a reason for that, and there is a fulfillment of things. But as of now, there's no temple. There's no priesthood. Remember, the week of the crucifixion. It was Jesus himself who said, this temple's going to be removed. They hated that he said that. They thought, he was, they thought he was completely perverting the law to even say such a thing. He goes, this temple will be gone. Not one stone will be left on another. He said that on the Olivet Discourse there in Mount of Olives. Jesus said the temple would be removed. He himself would be the fulfillment of everything the temple and the priesthood represented. Did you know that? Jesus said, tear this temple down, and three days I'll raise it back up. He was saying, this temple will take over that temple. Speaking of himself, this priesthood will take over that priesthood. And now, because of his resurrection and his sinless perfection, we have access anywhere on earth. Right here in Chesterfield County, you have access to the throne of God, to the priesthood, to the perfection of Jesus. The veil has been torn, and he now sits on his throne. Now, this is important. Why a throne? Because it actually alludes to the fact that Jesus is both king and and priests. Priests didn't sit on the throne. That was for kings. The priesthood and the kingship are one in Jesus. He's both our king of kings and our Lord of lords, but he's also our priest from the tribe of Judah. And if we're born again, we have Christ as our Savior. Yes. We have Christ as our king. Yes. But we also have Christ as what? Our mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He's our priest. He's the one that goes between the Father and says, uh, this is Tim again. He's blown it again. Um, but I got everything covered. I'm atoning for him for the eight millionth time. Because we've been adopted into the family of God and his righteousness, notice the invitation. We get to come boldly, not brashly, not pridefully, not any of those things. But this boldly means this. Humbly confident. Humbly confident. A humility, but confident that we have been invited, that we have, the, we have the invitation in hand. If you were to go somewhere and you say, no, no, I have the ticket, you have the confidence, not both, hey, get out of my way. No, it's like, no, no, I promise, I have, the, I have the ticket. We have the humble confidence to come into his presence. In Ephesians 3.12, this point's reiterated also it says, in whom we have boldness and access. There's the word actually in, in stated out. And confidence. It's a confidence. Lord, I know you've invited me. And you've invited me because of your grace, not because of my goodness. Notice the name of the throne. The throne of grace. What a name. Not the throne of arrogance. Not the throne of power. It's the throne of grace. People definitely do not need the Game of Thrones in America, right? You know, all this stuff, but they do need a throne of grace. Need a throne of grace. I need a throne of grace. You need a throne of grace. The Ark of the Covenant was sat there, and it was called, above the Ark was called the what? Mercy seat. He's, mercy's mentioned here as well. And that uh, we would find great, and obtain mercy and find grace. So mercy and grace, hand in hand, go together. The scriptures tell us that the mercy of God is new every day. We desperately, desperately need grace and mercy, don't we? Despe more than we know. More, whatever level you think you need grace and mercy, times and times a trillion. 
because we can't even comprehend how much grace we need. The Bible says we're sin abound, grace even more abound. Do you realize how much sin has been committed on planet Earth just since this morning started? So where sin abounds, that's a lot. You know grace has to be massive because the need is massive. Which is What is grace? It's that undeserved favor of God. And mercy is not getting what we actually deserve, which would be justice. So don't pray prayer, God, give me justice. No, 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 don't ever pray that prayer. Give me mercy. Give me mercy. Give me grace. It's interesting that we're saved by grace, and yet we need a continual outpouring of grace to walk in the very salvation that came through grace. Isn't that interesting? We're saved by grace, yet we need grace as much the day or the second after salvation as we did to come into salvation. D.L. Moody talked about this in his earthly ministry. Uh, he said, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him the next six months. You can't eat just, you can't go have tacos after church, which are awesome. Uh, you can't go have that and live for the next six months on it. You need tacos again on Monday, but uh, you will need, and Tuesday. And you'll need grace tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Notice the last phrase in verse 16. We're coming to a close here. And find grace to help in the time of need. When is the time of need? Well, the thing is, we won't really know it until it shows up. So we're always in a time of need. You don't know when, like those people, poor people in Texas, all of a sudden a shooter, they, they were entering a time of need and had no idea. We're always in a time of need. We just don't know it yet. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The time of need is constantly. It's hourly. It's daily. It's weekly. But sometimes it really, really jumps out. I say, wow, Lord, I really need your help. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to pray about this. I don't know how to digest this. How to refrain from something. How to persevere through something. How to forgive someone who seems unforgivable. How to be forgiven. Sometimes it's hard to even accept forgiveness, especially when you know look, the damage you've done. That's some of the hardest things. We have to be on both ends to forgive and be forgiven. How about dying to self? We need the grace of God to die to self, don't we? We need a lot of grace to die to self because we don't want to die to self. We want everyone else to die to themselves. How about to apologize to someone? Maybe you need to apologize. How about to serve? How about to be bold when you don't have any boldness whatsoever? Lord, I need the grace to be bold. How about the grace to be silent when you don't want to be silent? You want to like, hey, I know a lot here. I need to like, you know. No, God said, I want you to be silent. How about to overcome fears or worries or maybe despair in your life? Or you need to be cleansed again from sin. You need grace for all these things, amen? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. This is both an invitation, but it's also an indication that we must depend on Jesus. Do you hear that? It's an invitation, but an indication. It indicates we need to depend, and it invites us to depend on Jesus. How? Through the communion of being in the Word of God, which was the previous verses last week, dependent on the Word, for, to be a lamp to our feet. And a dependent word life will yield a dependent prayer life. Do you hear that? 
a dependent word life will lead into a dependent prayer life. This passage, to come boldly, well, it's to come to the Lord and talk to him. In 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. How do you come to God? You can't fly up into the heavens like Jesus did. You bow your heart and pray and talk to him. I love this passage. I'll close with this last passage. I love this passage. I read it this past week in 2 Kings 19. You can fill anything in this blank. If this becomes your life, look at this verse. Because you have prayed to me. Because you have prayed to me. Because you believed in me to pray to me. This is where Hezekiah found healing, by the way. Hezekiah, God said, because you prayed. Because you prayed. Because you believed. Are you ready to come boldly to the throne of grace? Are you ready to depend on the high priest and stop depending on yourself? To cling to him? To worship him? To receive his grace and mercy through his word? Are you ready for that in your heart and in your life? Let's pray. Father, we just bow our hearts and we bow our heads before you. We need your mercy and grace more than we know, more than we understand. But, Lord, you've said it, so that's enough. And, Lord, we want to become dependent upon you. We want to hold fast as you hold fast to us. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see your sinless perfection. And, Lord, that it would give us the confidence to know that because we're so not flawless, we cling to the flawless one, and it's liberating. We want our prayer life to grow. We want faith to come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, our word life to grow. And Lord, we need your help. We need the help of your spirit, and we need you as our priest to keep interceding on our behalf. And even now you are. 